Well, good morning. It's very uh, good to see all of you this morning, and um, glad that you're here. <clears throat> We're going to continue looking at First Peter, the letter that Peter wrote to the church, uh, the churches in Asia, uh, particularly because they were uh, suffering a degree of persecution. It's not the imperial persecution that came later in history, uh, where uh, you know Christians were thrown into the uh, gladiatorial ring and murdered in that way. It was more local, regional, and, and more, more familial. Uh, neighbors were uh, suspicious of their Christian neighbors. Uh, people employing Christians were uh, having difficulties uh, really getting their head around what these people were all about. And so uh, Peter wrote this letter in order to encourage them uh, to suffer well. In other words, their suffering... Uh, was going to actually be redemptive. In some way, it was going to communicate salvation uh, to the world. And so uh, let's read together. I'm, I'm actually, we've printed in your bulletin the uh, verses 21 through 25. I'm going to read starting at verse 18. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to there, uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And I'll start reading in verse 18, but what you have printed is, is the verses we're actually going to look at this morning. Uh, Now hear God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin, you are beaten for it or you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This letter is telling us how to live in and for the world, like we talked about last week. How do you live in and for the world, especially when we feel uh, so estranged at times? You feel like you're just not even part of this world. And Christians over history have tried everything to sort of manage how you live in this world. They've tried asceticism where, you know, uh, these guys would go out into the desert and they would live in a cave or they would live in a a hut or something completely isolated to try to stay away from the corruption of the world. Or you find in church history where the church just became the government, Christendom, what we call Christendom, and they became the government. They had armies. They had their own uh, rulers. The Pope was king of the world, you know, things like that. They've tried everything, and we failed miserably. But all through history, there have been a group of people who have really believed the gospel. They've believed that we should live a certain way. And you find them throughout history and they, they, they percolate up to the surface and you'll see what's going on with them. And it's very interesting. And I'm hoping that through this series, 
our church, Christ the King, we'll become some of those people that actually believe the gospel, that respond in the world around us the way we should, in and for the world, not try to hide from it, and not become so caught up in it that, that we become just like the world, but that people look at us and they say, wow, these people are different. These people are actually good for this world, good for the world around them. And there's a tension that exists. And so every one of the authors of the Bible, especially the New Testament, particularly Peter and Paul, Peter here and Paul in other places, always continually embed within their writing, within their letters, the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. And Peter does it in one of the most magnificent ways, I think, of any of the New Testament authors. He puts right in the center of his letter this little passage about the cross of Christ, what it means. And that's what we're going to look at today. And, and there's a tension that exists just in the very nature of the cross. Listen to what John Calvin said in his commentary on John, one of my very favorite quotes. For in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent, splendid theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere does it shine more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. Listen to this. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin blotted out. Salvation restored. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. This is the, the, the author John Calvin explaining the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of the cross at the same time describing the, the, what we're going to call the beastliness of the cross. So this morning we're going to look at three things very quickly. The beastliness that the cross describes. The beauty that the cross communicates to us. And finally, the beauty that transforms the beast. The beastliness, the beauty, and the beauty that transforms uh, the beast. Let's look at the beastliness of the cross. This is in verses 18 through 20, uh, which I wanted to include, but also 21 through 23. He's talking about Jesus going to the cross, and he's quoting Isaiah, which we're going to look at in a moment. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he's talking about the gruesomeness of the death of Jesus. Now, I don't want to get into all the details. You're welcome to, to look them up uh, online or anywhere else or in a number of places of what crucifixion was actually like. It was a horrific death. It was done either on a cross or on a killing spike, either one. Uh, we believe that Jesus was crucified on a, on a Roman cross. Uh, the, the nails, they were not little nails, they were big spikes and they were driven through a specific place in the hand, up a little higher on the wrist, not in the wrist, not in the palm, but right here in the pad, the thick part of your hand, there's a union of five bones and those of you that are doctors and know all about that, you'll know about it and they put that spike right through there, that way the, the nail wouldn't pull out and uh, it would be extraordinarily painful. And then there was the same place in the feet, and they would put the feet either next to each other or one on top of the other. You've seen these in images. And they would drive this nail in, and the, 
that prisoner hung by the weight of his body on the cross for hours, sometimes days. They did not die from not being able to breathe. They died because they could not exhale. They could take a breath in, but they could not exhale the breath. It was extraordinarily torturous and horrific. And these men that write uh, these letters are men who actually witnessed these things. They actually saw it. Not just the death of Jesus, but the death of many people. The Romans were famous for doing it. And the Persians before them. And, and beyond, back into antiquity. The killing spike, the cross, was used going back as far as we can tell in history. A horrific, terrible death. And, and Peter says, Christ suffered for you like this leaving you an example so you could follow in his, his steps. And then he describes the beastliness of it. Like, get this. The beastliness of the cross was not in the physical torture. As bad as that was, that's not where Peter takes us. Look what he says. In fact, we set it off for you in the text because that's the way it should be. As a separate, like a quote, a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement. He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. So Peter is going to extreme lengths to explain to you, look, he suffered this horrific death unjustly, and this is him. He committed no sin. He'd done nothing, nothing worthy of this death, nothing worthy of any death. But here it is right there for you to see the beastliness of the cross. Why is it so difficult? Let me ask you this. Why is it so difficult for us to suffer? Especially unjustly. Why do we as Americans recoil at the idea of somebody taking advantage of us? Why are our courts just flooded with sometimes trivial lawsuits? Why are we so quick not to forgive? And, and look, forget about out there in the world, folks, where we have courts and all that. Those are good things. Nothing wrong with that. But what about in church? Every one of you that's been in church for very long, you know that nowhere is this kind of unjust cruelty practiced more precisely than in church. Where we as religious, we call ourselves religious people, but we will kill and bite and devour one another to death if it serves our purpose. We have 45,000 denominations in the world today. And even the monoliths, we think the Catholic Church or the Eastern Church are monoliths, they're not. Within the Roman Catholic Church, there are dozens of orders, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Dominicans. Where do you think they all came from? And in the Eastern Church, we think the Eastern Church is a monolith. I was raised in the Eastern Church. It's not a monolith. There are dozens of Eastern Orthodox churches, Russian, Armenian. There's a whole other group, the Coptics, over in uh, Africa and Egypt and, uh, and, uh, and, and Ethiopia. You have all these divisions of church. And then in America, 45,000 denominations and denominations springing up every day. And I'm hoping, folks, that by, by reading you this letter, this is what Peter's trying to communicate. Why do, we, why do we bite and devour? Why do we consume one another? We should be willing to suffer, even if it's unjustly. We should be able to take it instead of being whiny and complaining. 
and always demanding our rights. And the Bible tells us, expect unjust suffering. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. James said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Peter even says later in this book, or earlier in the book in chapter 1, he says, rejoice. So now for a little while you have to suffer. It's necessary. Jesus said, if the world hates you, listen to what your Savior told you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Don't be surprised by it. In the world you'll have trouble. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, Christians are to live in a completely different plane. And it's, I'm not going to tell you it's easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's going to cost you. The question that Peter's asking, the question that you're being asked is, is it worth it? Why is it so difficult to do it? Dr. Larry Crabb in his book, Inside Out, I don't know if any of you have read this book. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But Dr. Crabb in his book, Inside Out, says there is a sin that really is underneath all the sins, the sin of idolatry, the sin of self. And he calls, Dr. Crabb calls it, self-protection. The sin of self-protection. And I've talked to you about this before, but I'm going to describe it a little bit more. Self-protection is, in fact, the very first sin you see in the Bible. Adam and Eve commit uh, the sin of eating the fruit and betraying God, and what's the first thing they do? They try to self-protect. How did they do it? They wove together fig leaves to cover themselves. And then to self-protect, they hid. And then when God finds them hiding and says, what are you doing? Adam says, it was the woman's fault. Self-protection. And then if that wasn't enough, he says, not only was it a woman's fault, it was the woman you gave me. He blames God. And he turns to the woman, he says, what have you done? And the woman said, it was the serpent's fault. And mankind has been doing this ever since, folks. Point, what's the very next thing that happens in the Bible? Any of you that have read your Bible? The very next thing that happens, who kills who? Cain kills Abel. Self-protection. This is the sin. Underneath all the sins. The very essence of idolatry is me first. Me, always, self, self, self. And I will go to this extreme if I have to, to protect myself. I will even do this. I will create God in my own image so that He never crosses my will, so that He always do what I tell Him. I'll make Him look just like me. And that way nothing I ever do is wrong. And if you have a God like that, you have your own, you're yourself, you're God. So what is the sin of self-protection? Listen to, I'm, I just listed a few of these. And uh, it's going to make you very uncomfortable. I'll tell you right now, it made me uncomfortable and I want to share the joy. So, uh, because I, I look, I, I, don't, I don't try to, to fool you people in our church. You know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I'm not proud of it, but I am. And you know what? You better be glad you have a pastor that's a sinner. Otherwise, I'd be crushing you every day, Right? No, that's not what we do. We come together because we're all broken people. We all need help. Me first. Listen. Listen to what Larry Crabb and other authors say is self-protection. Keep your relationships superficial, 
shallow, distant, and dissolve them quickly if it becomes inconvenient or uncomfortable. Don't, don't, don't be a loyal friend. Just be superficial. And if somebody, somebody just starts to make you a little uncomfortable, break the relationship. Be hypersensitive. You want to find hypersensitivity? Come to a Christian church. And you will find people whose all their feelings are out on their... Every little thing irritates them. Every little thing upsets them. Every, well, you didn't talk to me. You didn't say anything to me. Well, they don't pay attention to me. Well, they didn't recognize me. Well, they don't have anything for my children. Well, they don't have anything for the old people. They don't have anything for the young people. They don't have anything for the Christians. They don't have anything for the non-Christians. They don't have the... Constant complaining and carping. Have any of you heard that? No? Yeah. A constant Constant whining, hypersensitivity, easily upset, self-justifying, nobody's as good as me, I work harder than anyone else in the church, total self-absorption, often in the guise of uh, nobody's patient like me. I put up with all these people. Can you believe how patient I am? I have to put up with this? Nobody works as hard in the church. I'm there when they open the door. Frustrated over the lack of attention. Stuffing or venting feelings. You find somebody, Tim Keller says that, you find somebody that's angry and dig down underneath that anger and you will find out what really is their God. What is really their God? And if you struggle with anger and you're willing to look at your anger and, and why you vent or why you get mad, don't ever say to yourself, well, I have a right to be angry. You might have a... 90% right to be angry. And that's being generous. I'm being generous this morning. No charge. But what are you going to do with the other 10%? You just erase that? You can't do it, folks. Not possible. You can't find out what's making you mad. I don't care what it is. Even if you feel justified in it. Find out what's making you mad. Stuffing or venting or anger. Isolation. You find people all the time, even in church, they isolate themselves. They come high, 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 and then they're out the door. You don't ever see them again. What are they covering up? Why is isolation? They're self-protecting, self-protection. We rationalize our sin. I love this one. You know, you're looking at something and you say, you know, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And here's why I'm going to do it. And we come up with a million reasons why. We rationalize. We make up a, the greatest number of excuses. We could write a book of excuses of why it's okay for us to do this thing. Right now, I'm going to do it. Right now, watch. God, here I go. There it goes. And we rationalize it. And then afterwards, we feel terrible. Oh, I feel so bad. Well, I guess it's okay because I feel bad. Really? Oh, all right. And look, I'm talking to myself, okay? We maintain comfort. By avoiding interaction. How, is, how do you like this one? Frenetic busyness. Do you know people that are so busy that they just, in fact, when you go up and you talk to them and you say, hey, what's going on? I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. Like Mel Brooks in that uh, the movie where he says, work, 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 work. See, only the, only the bad people have watched that movie. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> You know, it's like we're busy, busy. Our calendars are full, 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 full. And people come to me all the time in our church, some of you, and say, I know you're so busy. I'm not that busy. I make it a point not to be busy. I sit around sometimes and just wait for you to call me. (laughs) I'm serious. I would love for somebody to call me. I sit down and go, gosh, I wish somebody would call me. (laughs) 
We should never be too busy for anybody. If I ever get too busy to, to meet with any of you at Starbucks and talk about our lives ever, I hope the session fires me. We should never be that busy. And if we're too busy, we can easily say, you know what, I don't have time today, I'll see you tomorrow. Right? Frenetic busyness, guarding our time. My time is more calendars packed full, double booked sometimes. What's going on there? Self-protection. Being curt, short, dismissive, using people to get something or only if they need something. And you ignore those who have nothing to offer. Look around at your friendships. How, why do we make friendships? Just because? No, there's always something going on. Ask yourself about it. Nice, being nice on the surface. Uh, touchy, a sense of entitlement. You know, you, you, oh, in America, my gosh, folks, what is wrong with us? The sense of entitlement. I have my rights. And we do have rights under the law. Under the Constitution, we have rights. But there are laws that are more important than those laws. And the Apostle Paul was amazing. In fact, I don't have time to go through it this morning. I'd love to, to show you chapter by chapter in the book of Acts how he used his Roman citizenship when it was convenient for him in order to promote the gospel. And when he didn't, he would keep quiet about his Roman citizenship and go to jail, be in chains, whatever was necessary. He'd be quiet until just the right moment. Then he would spring it on somebody and say, Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, you are? Oh my gosh. And then all, you know, heck would break loose because they had imprisoned a Roman citizen. Paul knew how to use his citizenship instead of whining and complaining constantly about his rights. And the root of all bitterness, I don't need, you know, cynicism. Uh, One of the things the postmodern generation and the XYZ generation and my kids, my boys, their generation, the millennials, all cynics, cynicism. And one commentator said, cynicism may be the worst possible sin because it is in direct contradiction to faith. Faith, at the end of the day, folks, says there is a resurrection. Yes? So when you look around you and you see the horrors of this world or you see your own body decaying or dying or you go to the doctor like I did this week. I had a doctor appointment. She scared me half to death. I won't tell you what she said. And you look at yourself and you look at your life and we get depressed and we're lonely and we don't understand why is God doing this one. Is there not a resurrection? Cynicism, horrible self-protection. And of course, self-justification, defending our, constantly defending ourselves. We have this victim mentality and we actually will put ourselves into that victim mentality because that's where we can protect ourselves. Self-protection, I could go on and on, the list is long, pages long. Self-protection, folks, is beastly. It is horrible. And the only way to conquer self-protection, the only way to deal with that sin of self-protection is the horror of the cross. That's what Peter is saying. You can't fix it any other way. You can't play nice with it. You can't live in denial with it. You can't pretend it's not there. 
You can't accept it because it's so horrible, it's so odious to us, it has a, a, an aura around it that is so awful, self-justification. So you, you're either going to live in denial or you're going to live in self-hatred. You're going to hate yourself. I'm the worst person in the world. I'm the worst Christian in the world. I'm, a, I'm the biggest sinner. You know, it's either self-denial, self-love, or self-hatred, one or the other, or we try to live in some sort of peace. We try to make peace with it with self-protection, and you can't. You have to do like Steve Brown used to tell us, and I've said this a hundred times in this church, look the demon in the lips, look the demon in the face and kiss him on the lips. Don't deny it. Go straight to it. And then work it out in your life. That's what Peter's talking about. You have to die. It's going to have to be put to death. And there's dozens of scriptures in the New Testament. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not me, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Put off the old self, the Apostle Paul said, and put on the new self. Put off that old life and put on the new. That is the life of Christian. That is going to require effort and suffering on our part. We're going to have to actually look at ourselves in the mirror and maybe for the first time in our whole lives be honest with that person looking back at us. And I'm not saying that everything is bad about us. You know, I look in the mirror, I see lots of good things. Lots of them. At least one, two. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I'm not saying that everything's bad about us. There's a lot of good things. If you meet people and you really get to know them, you find out that they are full of good qualities. But there are things that have us enslaved, yes? Things that have us in chains. Sometimes only we know about them. And those are the things God is not going to leave them alone. He's going to constantly be reminding us and working on us because He wants us free. He wants... Don't you like to know that? That He wants you to live free, free of those chains. And that's where the beastliness of the cross needs beauty. And the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the cross, over against its beastliness, is in verses 24 and 25. Look at what He says. He Himself, He uses a double, He uses an emphasis in Greek, He Himself, not He, He Himself. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. By His wounds you have been healed. What He's talking about is the, the, the body of Jesus on the cross took our brokenness from sin, that self-protection, and nailed it to the cross. It was crucified with Him there. And as you and I as Christians look at our lives and look out at the world around us that's broken and we're dealing with people that have been evil to us or mean to us or uh, have sinned against us or just offended us in some way that we are able to look at them, listen, through that cross. In other words, you look through it. It's almost like it's visible but not visible. It's translucent. You, you put the glasses of the cross on and you say, wow, Jesus dealt with me and all of my offenses this way. And then you pull that down and you start looking at other people. And if you do that, it will change your relationship. changes your relationships to everybody. That's how Jesus could say as they were pinning him to the cross, Father, forgive them. Do you think he did that because he was nice? Don't you know your Savior better than that? 
He did that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, hell opened up to him and he looked down and saw the horrors of it. And he begged his father, keep them from this. I'll go for them. I'll do for them. I'll be for them. But don't let them go here. Father, forgive them. You think he was just being nice? Way more than that, folks. And he wants us to put that lens on and look at everybody around us like that and say, wow, I don't, know what, I don't know what's going on with this person that they have to treat me this way. I don't know what's going on. But I know how I was. I know how I am. And Jesus forgave me. Therefore, I will forgive them. I will live in a different way with them. And we're to look at everything that way. I don't have time to talk about the passive obedience, the active obedience of Jesus but very much, but very quickly, the way this works, folks, is Jesus lived a perfect life for us. When he said, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he meant a lot of things. But one of the things he meant was, I have come to actually obey the law and live perfectly righteous under that law for you and as you. I've come to obey the law for you. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to actually authenticate the Word of God, the goodness of the law, the goodness and reality of the law, that it is freeing, that it is a wonderful thing. But we can't keep it. So he says, I will come and I will do for you the obedience you could not do for yourselves. And then, pass, that's active obedience. Then passive obedience is his going to the cross. He said, you don't think I can call 10,000 angels? I can call 10,000 angels. I can be free. I can come down from this cross when they were mocking him, saying, come down, come down if you're strong. If you're the Son of God, come down. What they didn't know is he could. He could actually have come down. He didn't. He stayed up there because he loves you. He stayed up there because he wants you to be free from self-protection. He didn't protect himself so that we don't have to protect ourselves. Do you see that? If you do, it will change the way you live. Every month, change every breath you take for the rest of your life. It won't happen right now this morning. I make those promises, no guarantee on that. It'll take you your whole life to work that out down into yourself. G.K. Chesterton said very famously, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. You see, when we read this, and I've, you know, I I know it's uncomfortable, makes me uncomfortable. But when you read this, you know it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you pride. It's going to cost you self-protection. It's going to make you face your anger. It's going to make you face your unrealistic expectations that everybody's supposed to be perfect like you. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh my gosh. The Apostle Paul said this, God has done what the law, listen, weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Do you see it? You see, Jesus lived the perfect law, life of keeping the law and then completely unjust, completely unjust, 
goes to the cross and dies the death of a sinner and replaces the life we should have died on that cross for us and in return gives us the life we didn't deserve, a resurrected life. And it produces in us what we call, and I can talk to you more about this another time, we don't have time right now, what we call passive righteousness. That's when you receive, you rest on Him alone for your salvation. You trust Him and you believe. That's passively. Nothing, you don't do anything to earn your salvation, do you? How could you? No. That's passive obedience. You trust Him, you're justified by faith. But then there's this other part that we don't like to talk about, active righteousness. That's you doing what is right, even if it costs you. Even especially when it costs you. In fact, Jesus said it, if it doesn't cost you, don't think it's worth anything. He said, hey, if you love those that love you, what thanks do you have? Even the sinners do that. That's no big deal. Love those that love you. But if you bless those that curse you, if you pray for those who despitefully use you, if, if they ask you for your coat, you give them your cloak also. If they want you to go a mile, you go too. When you're all in, when people see that there's something different about you, when you can say, my life for you, you are tracing. Remember from last week, you're tracing your life over the life of Jesus who said, me for you, my life for you. Now, folks, this is amazing. If, if we did this, our church, would be, our church would be famous. We would be famous. There would still be just a handful of people here because nobody wants to hear this stuff, but we would be famous. Have you seen those crazy people over there on Wrestler? They're nutty. They actually believe the gospel. They actually live like Jesus was real and that it's true. Bunch of nutty people. Well, so what is the beauty that transforms the beast? The beauty that transforms the beast. Well, it's Jesus Christ himself, the beauty that, and you've heard it all through the sermon this morning, the beauty that transforms the beast is Jesus. And I told you that Peter, in this little, this little passage here, is quoting the, the prophet Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah wrote this prophecy 750 years before Jesus was born. And he was talking about this figure of a suffering servant who suffers for the world. They didn't understand all of it as clearly as, as we do now, but they knew that there was this servant that would come, a descendant of David, and that he would wage war for them somehow, but it was going to cost him. It was going to be suffering to him. And, and it starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. I encourage you to read it last week. I hope some of you did. It goes through 53. I can't read the whole thing. It's too long. But listen to just this section. This is the beauty that transforms the beast. This is the thing that if you take it and, and, and work it down into your heart so it becomes the center of your life, Jesus Christ, the center of your heart, the center of your life, out from that comes everything else. Listen, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or beauty that we should desire him or look at him, no majesty that we should come to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we 
we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all the iniquity of us all. When this becomes the very heartbeat of your life, folks, which, and it's the heartbeat of this church, and we hope that you'll join the church so that you can become your heartbeat. It can be your heartbeat without joining, but it's it, easier if you do. If this becomes the heartbeat of your life, this man on Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who carried those sorrows for us and as us, then you can live in and for the world. It it won't become hard. It will become a pleasure to give yourself for a greater mission, for a great good, for a cosmic and glorious good, just like our Savior did. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, please. As difficult as it is, we, we don't pretend it's not. We know that it's hard, and I pray that you'll give all of us strength and courage to face those dangers, to, to face the struggles, to kiss the demon on the lips if we have to, to root out the, the roots of bitterness and anger and distress in our lives over the course of our life. And as we come to your table, we pray, Holy Father, that you would feed us in our hearts by faith and that through the love we see demonstrated there, drive out the bitterness and anger in our own hearts and make us new again. Teach us your ways, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.